This is Tomorrow Today, The Great Reprioritization with Steve Hart. I remember it like it was yesterday, July 20th, 1969. Just like every kid everywhere, I ran outside and I looked up. Men had just landed on the moon. You know, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. There's some real advantages to getting older. Chief among them is that it gives you a sense of perspective. When I reflect on how many changes there have been in the course of the tens of thousands of sunrises and sunset I've seen since men landed on the moon, and particularly the changes I've seen in the course of my professional life, it sometimes seems hard to believe all this has happened in just one lifetime. I entered the workforce in the 1960s. I probably shouldn't admit that. And from then until now, like many of you, I've seen work come to define a large aspect of my life. And and so has change. What I like to think of as not just change, but the delta forces of change. Delta is an acronym that I refer to when I think about change. And it captures much of what I think we've all seen over the past few decades. Delta, the acronym, uh, stands for the first is D for demographics. Think about how much has changed demographically since the 60s, the 70s. It used to be that there was such a stark gender distinction at work. It's almost unfathomable today. Do I think we've come as far as we need to go? Of course not. But the change has been extraordinary. Even the different ethnicities, the different perspectives, the different nationalities that you see in the workforce now, again, is it perfect? Of course not but so much more evolved than it was when I was a kid. The E in the acronym stands for economics. I don't even have to tell all of you listening how much the economic situation has changed as a consequence of globalization, of the rise of these mega corporations, of other government expectations, the, the, the various things that we've had that have impacted the economy in so many ways. The L stands for legal and regulatory changes. Any of you who are listening who work in any regulated industry know exactly what I'm talking about. And those of you who are working in, quote unquote, unregulated industries know it almost as well. The expectations of us are just tremendous and they grow and grow every day. The T stands for technology. And, you know, that's really the heart of what I always talk about is the technology, the changes that we've seen. And I'm not just talking about artificial intelligence. I'm talking about everything from microwave ovens and dishwashers in the home to uh, even the the reliability of automobiles. And you think of how even things as simple as music have changed over the course of, well, my life anyway. We went from records to A-tracks to cassettes to CDs to now music is digital with MP3. Uh, just those technology changes we've seen have been remarkable. The a is the final part of the acronym, and that stands for the attitudes and values. And I think that's been the biggest change of all. And I think very much for the positive in many ways. We have seen people shift in their mindset, in their relationship with work, and how they think about work, and how they expect to be treated and what they expect from work. That's exactly what I want to focus in on today. I want to talk to us. I want us to have a conversation around attitudes, values, the beliefs, who people are, what they are, how they can be fulfilled, how their needs can be met, and how they're not occasionally being met. Fortunately for us, I have the perfect guest to speak with today. 
My guest is Steve Hart. Steve has had over 30 years of experience in leadership roles with the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, where his focus was exactly that, on helping people navigate change, to evolve, to grow, and to successfully meet the new challenges that they have on an ongoing basis. Steve's currently a senior consultant and executive coach with an extraordinary team at the Professional Development Group. And don't worry, we'll be sure to post a link to their firm in our show notes. In addition to his sort of professional experiences, he's also had professional academic experiences. Over the course of his professional life, I think the common denominator that's defined Steve is that he's been a teacher. For the past 27 years, he served on the faculties of several universities. And before that, he actually taught children at the elementary school level. And hopefully we'll, we'll get a chance to hear a little bit about that during the conversation today. Steve is currently serving as a member of the affiliate faculty in the Organizational Dynamics Program at the Wharton School, the University of Pennsylvania, where he also hosts a podcast of his own called Learning Aloud. And if you haven't listened to it yet, I highly recommend it. We'll also post a link in the show notes there so you can check it out. Before I bring Steve on, rounding out the story of this absolutely remarkable Renaissance man, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Steve is also, uh, because none of that's enough, he's also a singer-songwriter, and he's part of an acoustic band that plays original music that he writes, and those songs are really born out of stories. He is a storyteller, and he tells stories to music, uh, and his music, I'll tell you, it's haunting, it's beautiful, and it's music that touches your soul, I think you'll find, and we're going to ask Steve if we can tack on a bit of his music and a link to more of his music on the notes of this show and, and in the closing notes of this show. Finally, on a personal note, full disclosure, uh, Steve is also my best friend. We've known each other now for, I think it's 25 years, and I have learned more from him than from all the university professors and all the institutions I've attended combined. Uh, just a remarkable guy. Steve, thanks so much for joining the show. Well, thank you, JT. What an incredible introduction. Thank you so much. I, I'm humbled in your presence. Thank you. <laughs> well, uh, likewise, those of you who can't tell, we have a, a serious mutual man crush going on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> although it hasn't always been that way, right? I mean, the truth is... <laughs> no, that never started that way. I, I wasn't going to tell this, but the truth is we hated each other, right? Uh, we disliked each other strongly yeah. uh, the first day we met. Uh, Steve thought that I was, you know, sort of a, a driven, type A, demanding kind of a guy. And I thought he was a little bit kumbaya, giving a hug. And and we just didn't like each other. But we we respected each other, I think, right from the beginning. Yeah. Right. And that respect grew into uh, a friendship that's lasted now for, you know, a quarter of a century. Yeah. And uh, wow, it's weird when you say it that way. Right. It is. Yes. So getting into the conversation. Um, Am I far off the mark with that notion of the Delta forces of change with the change we're seeing? I mean, you're fortunately, Steve's even older than me. And so you, <laughs> you have that advantage of perspective. You had to bring that up, didn't you? I know I did. I did. <laughs> one of the things I teach and one of the reasons I teach is the course that I teach at Penn is never the same two years running. And the reason for that is so much changes within a year. Mm. And, you know, I like to bring in the fact that the learning that we do is highly contextualized to the age in which we live. And we have to be attentive 
to the forces of change that are around us all the time and not get complacent and locked into a way of thinking and conceiving the world on old ideas and paradigms. We've got to recognize that things are changing around us constantly. So I have an annual ritual, and I'm actually going through it now. I'm actually revamping my fall course now because so much has happened in the last three or four months, to be honest, that is driving me to reconstruct my course yet again. And the people I work with get very aggravated with me because it's it's (laughs) a... You know, most people, uh, a lot of people in academia lock into a way of teaching and a, a course content and they kind of repeat and rinse. Yeah. I'm not that kind of a teacher. I really believe that uh, the value that you bring to the classroom and the experience for the students, it has to feel it's relevant. It has to feel that it's futuristically thinking and it's got some element of current truth to it. And and that's really through the delta forces of change, through using those lenses that you talk about. Ever since I heard that from you many years ago, I yeah. constantly had that the delta forces of change in my head. And it serves as a conduit for reconceptualizing and sort of reevaluating where we are with what the learning is going on and how we need to confront it. So let me challenge you on that, um, because I can, and say, I agree with you. I'm going to see if I can simultaneously agree and disagree with you. Let's see how that goes. And so I agree with you, of course, that everything is in a constant state of flux. But don't you think there's also a stable center? Yes. That some things never change, right? And and so how do you strike that balance? And and let's start with your students and, and the people who you uh, – and as I mentioned, you're an executive coach and you work with senior executives. How do you balance the – Everything is changing and some things never change. How do you balance those things? And what are those things that become that, that sort of core? Well, that's clearly a polarity, isn't it? Sort of the, yeah. the, the, the center within yourself versus the world around you. And how are you, have, you need to have a foot in both camps in my mind. So the things that don't change, I think, very often are, are what drives people, what motivates people to do what they do. So they have a center of core beliefs, a set of um, ways of thinking and conceptualizing the world. But it needs to be adaptable and flexible to the times in which we live. It doesn't mean they drift across. They don't have one value one minute, another value another minute. There is a core sense of who we are as human beings, yeah, which stays center and sort of guides you and sort of is your principle of operating. But you have to learn to be adaptable to say, well, in the context of this situation, I have to draw upon something within myself that confronts it and accepts it and moves on. And so there are there's sort of a solid center. But there's also this vortex of stuff going around us that we have to be aware of and contextualize and to adapt to. But but don't you think even that has changed in a lot of ways? I know when I first entered the workforce, it was very analogous to my time in the military, right? Mm-hmm. When I was in the military, they were uh, – and it's horrible, but they used to tell us if the military wanted you to have a spouse, we'd have issued you one, right? <laughs> and if we wanted you to have an opinion, we'd tell you what it is. Uh <laughs> And, you know, I, I think it was even the same way. If you go back to the the 70s, right, even the early 80s, uh, even I guess throughout the 80s, into the 90s almost, we weren't entitled to bring our values to work, mm-hmm. right? We weren't entitled to bring our perspective and who we are. Or were we? And has that changed? And And do you think that's a positive or a negative change? I think it's a positive change. I mean, I, I remember the date of the organization, man, right? The, 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 where yeah. everybody had to subs- uh, be, be subservient to the needs of the organization. 
And, and I think organizational life is still very much a constant battle between the self-interest of an individual and the needs of an organization. That battle still exists. But I think the, the, the forces or the, the balance of it maybe have shifted a little bit. It used to, when I started my work career, as, uh, as you did, it was all about putting the organization's needs first before your own, significantly before that, and, right. and uh, shutting up and uh, be just, just being responsive to what you're told to do. And there was a time when that was probably relevant and maybe even needed. And, and I, I, I viewed that as an opportunity to learn because I was inexperienced in the world of business. And I used that as a leverage to say, well, this is how I'm going to learn from other people. By them telling me what to do, I will learn how to react to things. Well, you know, and, and that brings up, uh, it will sound like a little bit like a tangent, but one I'd like you to take us down. You didn't go to school uh, with a perspective to go into the corporate arena no. to go into the world of work you as i mentioned in in the lead up you've been teaching for many 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 centuries now <laughs> for, for a long time but you didn't start out in in a corporate context uh talk a little bit about that and and what your roots are well i you know i my first job was with moses on the ark uh <laughs> no, <laughs> no I'm, I'm kidding <laughs> yeah you know i i um I don't know what it was. I, I had dyslexia as a kid, as a, a young person growing up. And, and also my mother died when I was very, very small. So uh, I never knew my mother. But it was just my dad and I for a long period of time before my dad remarried. And I had some learning difficulties uh, at the beginning of my school career. Very nervous, uh, anxious kid, very um, shy and diffident and withdrawn, I would say, to some degree. But I bumped around a lot because I lived with grandparents for periods of time while my dad got his life back together. But but let me interject there also. This was a time when dyslexia wasn't recognized, right? When That's right, yes. We didn't talk about it. You were just the dumb kid or whatever. Yeah. I had some form yeah, some form of learning disability that could go didn't but that couldn't be diagnosed for some reason. Right. But but people put it down to oh, it's just it's just because he's going through some emotional trauma. He's going through some difficult uh, adjustments through this time period because I'm going to different schools. So people dismissed it. And so, you know, the foundation for that was that, but I remember what it felt like to be in that situation among people who didn't have what I had. And I thought yeah. uh, when it came time for me to uh, move into what I'm going to do for the rest of my life, I started with the notion that I want to be a teacher because I, I'm sensitive to those kids that might have struggles like I did to learn and adjust to the world. So I'm going to devote my attention to becoming what I call it, when back in England at the time, it was a special ed teacher. Yeah. And I worked with boys in a boarding school who were, what, and this is their word for it, not mine, you would never get away with this right now, emotionally disturbed and maladjusted. Wow. Yeah. They came from all over the country. And uh, I, I saw something remarkable in the, the experience there. It was a crucible-like experience because not only was I teacher there, but I lived there. Yeah, I had a house on the grounds of the school, and I was constantly sort of in view of everybody. Even if I wasn't working, I was around it all the time. And uh, something remarkable happened, I think, in that time period. I saw kids that were very successful in navigating through. I saw teachers in particular that were either – very successful at getting through to the kids or totally crash. Yeah. And so I started to look for what, what is the reasons for, for that? Why might somebody be 
successful and somebody else not be successful. And yet there we are in the exact same experience. So it got me thinking about this notion of what it is that uh, you need to have in terms of qualities and approaches and relationships in order to encourage people to learn and grow. And that's the seed that planted. Yeah. And, you know, in knowing you for all these years, I, I think it's an ethos that has become foundational to the perspective you bring in now to working with, you know, fully formed adults, senior executives. Yes. And I won't, I would never disclose names, but you've worked not only with the senior most executives at the Philadelphia Federal Reserve Bank, but you've worked with the board, uh, the board of the Federal Reserve uh, and have consulted to them and worked with them as well. I, I'm not saying they had any challenges or issues or developmental issues, but I think you bring that same notion of there's something unique and something worthwhile within everyone. And how do we help them uh, sort of actualize that, right? How do we help them optimize those gifts they have? And so instead of looking at the kid and saying, well, you have dyslexia, let's look at those things that you have. And for you, it was art, mm -hmm. right? It was sculpting, painting, but most particularly music. Right. Yeah. Those were the avenues that, you know, I, I like to think that my quest is really about unleashing the human potential mm. of enterprise. That's, that's kind of the quest I'm on individually, personally. So are you um, Don Quixote or, or do you <laughs> see other people who are joining you in that quest? Is uh, When you first brought this mindset to, to the world, when you went to the work for the bank, you uh, were at the bank, uh, gosh, when did you start? Uh, 85. 85, 1985. This was unheard of then right? Yeah. To be able to bring in this sort of a mindset. Yeah. Um, are you, are, do you feel like you're still alone in the wilderness or do you think this sort of mindset is catching on that more companies are seeing their people less as, you know, sort of uh, uh, amorphous assets or, or generic assets that can be traded, which by the way, before you answer, you know, um, one of the things I shared with you once when I was in the military, we had this form that you had to fill out if you needed a new blanket or a cot or even a gun. If you lost your M16, you would fill out this form and you would put in the box for the equipment you requested, you know, M16, or you would put in the designation code for a blanket or for a helmet. And we used the same form if we needed a new person, right? If we broke one or lost one or one got killed, uh, we would put in like 11 Bravo, one Papa, which is an airborne infantryman. And we would just put that designation in the box and they would consider to just be interchangeable units. And I think that's reflective of how we used to think of employees. And I'm wondering if you've seen a shift away from that. Yeah, I, I have. And you're, very, you're, you're right that, uh, you know, for a long period of time in my career, one could feel like uh, in organizations, you're just a, you're just a part, you're just a, a machine part yeah. in the organization. And you know what, you're interchangeable, you can, you're very dispensable, and you can be changed in the moment. So that was always sort of lingering in the background. But I actually absolutely have seen a change uh, in the last several years. And I would argue, perhaps that the pandemic has been an accelerator of that change. How so? Well, we really bumbled the shutdown yeah. from an organizational perspective, right? Many organizations just gave very little thought to how they're going to mobilize people to start working from home on a full-time basis. And, you know, they, they weren't prepared for it. They hadn't given some thought to it. Leaders sort of bombasted their way into that uh, yeah. that thinking and just thought it was just, just like machines, we could just all switch our minds on and off just like that and say, okay, you're no longer here, now you're there, get on with it. 
I think that was wrongheaded. And, and we're seeing the backlash of that now in the Great Resignation and of people who are not wanting to go back to the organizations that they left behind. Something has changed significantly and profoundly in the minds of people who share a work experience. And many of them are in a position to say, well, screw this. I don't need this in my life. I'm reprioritizing the way I think about this, and I'm moving on to something else that honors more of my spirit. Yeah, you know, it it's, uh, really resonates with me. You had used a phrase when we were talking about this once before, and you said you don't think of it as the great resignation so much as the great recalibration, Yeah, right? Yeah. That people are now looking at and saying, frankly, what the hell am I doing, right? Yeah. I'm going to work in a cubicle where I'm miserable uh, for – for what? I, I get on this treadmill and I want to be able to get a raise so I can spend more money so I can have to go after another raise so I can get more money. And, you know, there, of course, there's never enough. It's like the goldfish theory, right? You always grow to the size of your bowl. Yeah. Um, and, and I think what you're saying, what I hear from you is that now people are looking back to sort of where we started this conversation and saying, what are my values? Who, who am I? And is that aligned with what I am doing with my life, right? Consider that most of our time, our waking hours are spent at work. For most of us, uh, we're spending, you know, what, 40, 50, I mean, I'll argue nobody really works just 40 hours. If you have to count commuting time. You have to count getting ready for work. Mm-hmm. Even now when we work at home and so many people have been virtualized, you're never really away from it. Right. Uh, and if you're doing something that not only makes you miserable, but that doesn't enrich your life. What the hell are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. I called it the reprioritization uh, in terms of uh, people have, 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 have uh, had the chance to sit and reflect and say to themselves, what was once important to me, critically important to me, now perhaps is not quite so. Yeah. And, and, and I think the basis of that, that thinking has come from an experience, a physical experience that people have had, particularly from the person that leads them. I remember the very first coaching uh, I did uh, after the pandemic hit, and it was the it was it was a, a person I was working with prior to the pandemic, and asked me to sit in on his first staff meeting in the virtual environment. Mm. And he he got online. It was a Zoom call. He got on and. Uh, there were, his team was assembled well before he got there. And so they were having some sideline chatter. He joined the call and immediately got into the business of the day. And not only to get into the business of the day, but he- No niceties, nothing, right? Just Right. He, he, he called, in fact, not only did he get to that, he called somebody out on his team right away and said, hey, Jim, I see your numbers really suck this week. <laughs> it's almost like his- <laughs> How are you doing? <laughs> There was no recognition that something had shifted perceptually from people. Suddenly, they're in this foreign land of Zoom. Yeah. And uh, no, it, there was no attention on his part to, hey, how are you doing, guys? Right. Well, and what exacerbates that also is one of the, the disadvantages to virtualization is it does dehumanize, right? It's Yeah. I, I refer to it as uh, cyber bravery. You know, even all the meanness you see in tweets and in texts and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think in in – even a Zoom conversation, you know, there was a commercial many years ago that you'll remember uh, for AT&T, and the theme was long distance is the next best thing to being there. And I always used to say, yeah, the next best thing. It's not nearly <laughs> the same, right? Correct. And so, yeah, I think it does dehumanize that. Yeah. But the, the, but the fact that I use that story just to highlight sort of a, you know, it was maybe an extreme case. But the notion is that that was, that's an example of a, of a leader 
in otherwise in the in the office might be tolerated, but in an experience like this where people were really uh, scared, yeah, people were frightened. Uh, I always remember your talk on anybody can steer the ship when the when the sea is calm. Right, right. That's a talk that you've given before, and it's true that this this was an example of turbulent times. People were scared. People were anxious about the future. They the stock market was collapsing. Their four hundred one ks were going down the hill. They had all kinds of fears and anxieties, and yet he made no attempt at all to create a safe place conversation where the team could talk about that before they got into the business of the day. Yeah, I think that's so right, and that's so important. We tend to forget that. I think going back to your earlier point, we we almost tacitly treat people like they're meat robots, right? Yeah, like they're bereft of feelings of a life of you know. We we tend to forget that they have real families. You know, one of the points uh, I've long made is we all tend to play the starring role in the movies of our own life, mm. but we forget that everyone else does too. They're not just extras in our movie, right? Right. They're not just that person who has a walk-on part. In their life, they're the star of their movie. And and just to acknowledge that, that, that people have, you know, wants and needs and they're really dimensional human beings, uh, I, I think is – is something that we're starting to see come more present. But, you know, to your point, do you think we did slide back as a consequence of the pandemic? Do you think that we've lost ground? Yes. Yeah, I do. And I, I think at the essence of it, I mean, some of the more recent teaching research conversations I've had, particularly at the coaching level and with leaders, is their ability to be empathetic. To your point about seeing other people's needs from their situation, not just simply being uh, sympathetic, but being really empathetic about it. And instead of saying, you know, let, let me let me help you walk through that. What is it that you need from me right now that can help you do what you need to do? And it's on an individual case-by-case basis on how a leader needs to present that him or herself to the people that they're currently working with in these difficult circumstances, because it's still very challenging. Yeah. People still have a lot of things to do. And and I would I would argue that the currency of today is is that empathy. It's it's really the currency of leadership is about the ability to express empathy for those that you that work with you and for you. And I, I think it's an important phrase, empathy, not sympathy, right? But true empathy to be able to put yourself in their skin and walk around in it for a little bit. And look, there are people who are going to be listening to this and rolling their eyes and saying, please. You know, my job is to make sure, you know, the, the Wemus report is done on time yeah. and our TPM numbers are up. And and that's what I do. And I, my job is to crack the whip. And, and I think a big part of what you're saying, what I uh, have heard from you over the years is this isn't just because it's being nice, no. uh, although that should be enough. I mean, it should be enough that you get to be a, a more real human being. Uh, and, and you get to look at yourself in the mirror and be happy with who you are. But another side of that is this actually lends to creating a more engaged, a more productive, a more effective workforce, right? Exactly. I mean, look at your own experiences. You know, uh, how much are you going to do for the person you hate versus the person you adore? Yeah, it, it's just that much different. And, and I don't think we're talking about being manipulative either, right? We're talking about being very authentic. Yeah, you know, it's an invitation to people to say, let, let's co-create the world that we want in our workplace together. And I think, you know, for a long time, there's been a premium on hierarchical thinking in organizations where the boss is supposed to know the answer. The boss tells everybody else what to do and nobody questions it. I think what we've come to, and the pandemic, again, has been a, a lens through which we can view this, is we're now in a 
thinking in a linear world that requires us to be more nonlinear in our actions. Yeah. And we have to be able to we have to be able to say, well, you know, as the boss, you've got to be humble enough to say, guys, I don't know the answer necessarily. We're in uncharted waters. We've never been here before. I may have my thoughts on it, but I really would like to invite you into the space to give me your thoughts on how you think we can address this. So it's it's switching the mind of the leader to a more collaborative, open, invitational space. It's not just about being nice. It's about being a quest for the truth and for the right kind of action. It's not about giving away everything and acquiescing to everybody's demands, but it's about a compelling future that people co-create with you as a leader. That's what we want to get to. Yeah, I, I think absolutely. And look, not to be Pollyanna here, to be all you know, rose-colored glasses, but there's this uh, uh, very well-known politician, maybe you've heard of him, guy by the name of Winston Churchill. Um, Was he English? Yeah, yeah, I was. I don't know. I, it's, I think. Well, for the record, I think your accent is made up. I think it's fake. I think you're really from Brooklyn. But <laughs> Churchill once very famously said to never let a good crisis go to waste. And so I'm wondering, is there a positive spin? Can we use this experience of the pandemic now that we are? I mean, heaven willing, you know, maybe we're coming through it uh, and let's just hope and hope that things are, are, are about to get better and better and better. Are there lessons learned? Are there advantages we can take? Can we spin from this and come out of this saying, you know what, uh, and use this for our, for leadership, for the organization also to have a reprioritization, not just for the employees? What do you think? Well, I think so, but it depends on how open a leader might be to adopting that. You know, if, if your intention is, I read some research the other day, the people that want to be back in the office most are uh, white men, executive men. Really? They want people in the office. And I thought, well, and so I had some conversation. So what's the reason for that? Well, that's where I'm in control of everything. Yeah. I can see everybody. I can be back in control. So if, if that's your, if that's your, if that's your reason for being, then we're, we're not going to learn anything. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And and that tends to be the knee jerk. It's, you know, I, I can't manage or lead someone unless I can control them, which is bizarrely ironic. You know, I've had yeah. literally thousands of people working for me at any one time. And let's be honest, I never know what the hell they're doing. Uh, there, there has to be, that, well, really, well, I never know what I'm doing, but there has to be that trust. There has to be, you know, whether you're sitting on the same floor as me or on the same campus as me, uh, I don't know that it has to make that difference, but I think that is, you know, to your point, it's vestigial also of that culture we tend to see. It's one of the things you didn't say. It's not just white men. It tends to be white men of a certain age, right? Yeah. It tends to be, you're not seeing a 22-year-old white man who's saying this. No. It tends to be, you know, people who are a little bit older. White middle-aged. Are you seeing the same impact? Yeah. And, and so- they also tend to be the ones, by the way, who are fine with it, right? So even if they're on the other side of it, they're used to this, they're comfortable with this, and it's going back to what makes us comfortable. Do you see the same impact uh, of, of this pandemic, of this return to work? What impact is that having on on women, on people of color, on a younger generation? What do you think? There's no secret that women have been disproportionately hit the most with this is something like 40% of women are displaced out of the workforce. It's just an incredible setback for, for women. And, and 
a lot of business leaders are moving on relentlessly without any regard to that fact at all. So yeah. there is a profound and disproportionate impact of what's going on, and it's it's increasing again. And as we think and contemplate the going back to work status, and that's again another reason why there's the great reprioritization going on in the minds of people about this is not something that's valuable to me anymore. I found things more important than the career that I have, and I'm willing to uh, change the way I prioritize my work in response to that because some things have shifted. Yeah, and I think to that point, I think if people look at this the right way, they can use this as an opportunity to affect real change. You know, you and I have both had life-changing events in our life. Mm -hmm. And I think both of us have used those as catalysts, as as turning points to be able to be more of who we wanted to be. You know, uh, I don't think I'm, hopefully I'm not giving anything away, but I'm going to share with the listeners, uh, you actually died once. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> By the way, literally, clinically, you're dead. Yes. Um, did that have an impact? <laughs> I, 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 we've never really talked about it. Yeah, you know, it did. Yeah, it did. It was a it was actually uh, two strange things happened there. One, I, I told you earlier that because of the very disruptive early childhood I had, I was very anxious. I used to have nosebleeds like constantly, right, as a young man and always anxious and uh, always um, sort of intestinal distresses and all that kind of stuff whenever I did anything important. Now, along comes my gangrenous peritonitis that um, my last year of college in England when I had this uh, – situation and emergency rush to the hospital and clinically die right before as the surgery was going on and brought back to life. And and what happened when I came out of that, I was somewhat transformed as a person. My anxiety was gone. Hmm. Um, I started to feel more, I no longer had nosebleeds. I was um, very curious, very open to things that I was previously very afraid of trying or doing things. I become more venturesome. I started to uh, read more avidly, a, a perceptible shift in my academic prowess changed. I became far more engaged in the world and curious about it and far more open to it and much more relaxed about things that happened. When I, when, when situations would come along, I said, hmm, interesting, let's see what this brings. Yeah. So it was just a complete shift. And I, I, it wasn't something conscious, it's just something that showed up as a result of a, a meaningful, impactful event like that. Well, it, one of the key phrases you use there is you weren't as afraid anymore. And mm. and I'm struck always by how much of a role, and I think it's it's rarely acknowledged, but how much of a role fear plays, even in a professional setting. Yeah. You know, w when you look at that, what do you think? Do you think fear actually plays a role in when we're talking about some of these like these uh, older white men who require people to be there? Where does that come from? Is that, what do you think? Yeah, in, in many ways, the need to be that way comes from fear, Yeah, right? The fear that, that people are doing things that who are responsible to you, but you're not aware of what's going on and you feel somewhat accountable. There's also the fear that they might be doing something against your interests. Yeah, I think in the form of American leadership that we have in our businesses, there is, there is some element of uh, every elevation you get in an organization, that fear becomes more profound as to, how you're protected and whether or not you are safe within the realm of the work that you're in. And, and so the fear is a great motivator, I think, for how leaders react. And the reason that they become command and control oriented is because of somewhat out of fear rather than out of any other motivation that they might have. I think underlying it is, a, is an intrinsic fear 
about what it is that they can't control anymore. Yeah, well, and you bring up a good point. Fear can also be channeled positively. Yes, right? We can use these fears to be able to move us in the direction uh, and, and to be able to, I, I don't know, when you're talking about your experiences in this life-changing experience of dying, uh, it also causes us to to reassess, to recalibrate, and to, I think, consider to ourselves, how scary is this really? And when we're talking now, coming through a global pandemic that I mean, let's not downplay this for a second, over a million lives lost just in the United States, and it's still going on. We're still losing. Yeah, it's still happening. Today. Yeah, exactly. We tend to, I mean, there's other things in the news now, so, you know, we, we have short attention spans. Let's pay attention to, you know, what the Kardashians are doing, I guess. <laughs> uh, but I think it's also disrupted even not just the the reprioritization of people who are deciding to go to work, but even in work, you know. It used to be, and again, and I hate waxing nostalgic here, but I think the contrasts are so important. When you and I were younger, there was a path that you took. You climbed the corporate ladder. That's what you did, right? When you joined an organization, you joined in the proverbially in the mailroom and you worked your way up, right? And you went to the second rung, to the third rung, to the fourth rung. And that was true. I think it's still true in a lot of organizations. It's a it's a manifestation of of the Peter Principle. And, and for those of you who are listening who don't know, uh, a fellow by the name of Lawrence J. Peter wrote this book in the uh, 1970s, I think it was, 73, 74. And he postulated a principle in this book. And he tried to get this published by, I can't remember, innumerable publishers, 30-something publishers. They kept rejecting him because they thought it was a joke. But he was deadly serious when he said, and the Peter principle was, given the opportunity, all people will eventually rise to their own level of incompetence. And it was true, right? If you're a good ditch digger, what do they do? They make you a supervisor of ditch diggers. Well, just because you dig ditches well, doesn't mean you'll be a good supervisor. But if by some miracle you are, what do we do? Well, we reward success. We punish success. We're going to make you a manager of the ditch diggers. Then we're going to make you a vice president and senior vice president. Eventually, we're going to keep promoting you to a place where you're incompetent. And the way it works, especially in Western cultures, is we won't demote you once you're there. We'll just we'll lock you in and we'll leave you there. But you talk about an alternative way of thinking about things. You talk about an alternative to the corporate ladder. And, and I wonder if you wouldn't mind elaborating on that. Sure. This was born out of, uh, I had a wonderful experience before I left the Fed, uh, one of the things that I was very proud to be a part of, I wasn't the architect of it on my own, but what I worked on with several of my wonderful colleagues in the development area of the bank was on this thing called the Leadership Fellows Program. It was an opportunity to bring in young people directly out of a university, out of college for a meaningful career at the Fed and give them a set of experiences in within three years and give them an opportunity to have a broad breadth of uh, experiences in different departments of the organization. And it was very successful. And it's still going to this day. And there's this wonderful legacy of, uh, of what that has brought to the organization. So proud of it. And one of the things that, that came out of that in conversation with them is don't think of this as a, as a ladder climbing opportunity. Mm-hmm. Think of the diversity of experiences here more like a rock wall analogy as opposed to a ladder climbing. The rock wall, if you think about it, has got alternative ways to get to the top. 
sometimes you make a move down in order to move up effectively. Sometimes it's a sideways move. So we started to conceptualize this experience as being a rock wall-like experience as opposed to a ladder climbing experience. And out of that came the richness of the different experiences, the forced move to give, give these young people uh, a year in a job and then deliberately move them to somewhere else where they were less qualified and let them see how they would do this and climb that wall again, come again at it, pick your pitch and, and work your way through the challenges of, of learning that job. Yeah. I love that. I, I And not just because I used to actually, I was a rock climber. Yeah, me too. Back when we just invented rocks. Uh, <laughs> it's been a while. But yeah, and that so resonates with me is when you are climbing a ladder, I mean, you're going one rung at a time and that's where you go. And right. A very prescribed path. Very linear. Yeah, it's a constant. I used to think of it as, almost as moving chess, right? You had to think about what is your next move? And when you make that move, what's the next move going to be available to you? Yeah. And I, I think it's wonderful, not only that that you're thinking about it that way metaphorically, but that you're creating circumstance where it's okay to fail. Yeah. It's okay to realize that maybe this wasn't the right route, that maybe there's another way to be able to climb here that may be more amenable to your your skills, your interests, your your capabilities. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's that that's the key to it is about this um, openness to alternate points of view and ways of accomplishing goals. And I think it's also giving employees, giving people a path to learn. Yes. Right? To be able to evolve. Yeah, that's the critically important is, is um, you know, I'm asked, I'm asked often what, what is the secret for a longevity in a career and what is the, uh, what's the secret sauce to keep it rich and, and uh, interesting. And I always say it's, it's curiosity and it's continual learning. Yeah. And, you know, always be absorbed in what you're doing and do the best you can with what you have to do. But take time to look around you. What else is going on that interests you? What are you curious about? How do the pieces of this organization come together? What are the parts in it that you have no interest or uh, responsibility for yet could be a contributor to your opportunity to learn and grow? I, I was at the Fed for a number of years when an opportunity came to be corporate secretary for a while. And uh, it got me into a side of the bank that was a complete mystery to me for the first 20 some odd years that I was there. And that's how does the bank's governance and board membership at the local level work? What are the mechanisms to bring people in from the industry to create a, a local Federal Reserve Bank board? And uh, I stepped up to that opportunity, not knowing nothing about the inner workings of how to do it, but I was so curious enough about it that it compelled me to put my hat in the ring for that opportunity. And it one of the best ex seven months experiences I've ever had in my career. Absolutely loved it. And yeah. working with the people behind the scenes on this and uh, really getting to round out my understanding of what this organization that I really love to be a part of was really all about. And it was wonderful. Do you think we're heading more that direction? The point of, of this show is everyone spends an inordinate amount of time, in my humble opinion, ruminating about what has been or complaining about what is. And without being too naive about it, we like to talk about what can be, right? We like to talk about what we can do today to make for a better tomorrow. What's your guidance and advice? If that's true of the individual, that they have that that rewarding experience that, and I think we can generalize, this isn't just for you, right? Most people actually enjoy uh, that notion of 
being given some freedoms to be able to learn to grow. Um, Well, and let me stop there and ask if you think that's true generally. And then I want to ask you next, so to tease it up, what do we do as an organization to be able to facilitate that? Yeah, well, that's a very complex issue, but I think- You're a complex guy. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, (laughs) There's so much of this that's sort of inherent in the mind of the individual, right? What is your own effort and energy you're going to put into making whatever work experience you have meaningful and purposeful to you? Yeah. But I I, I love the work of Dan Pink, and I follow sort of a principle that he identified, I think, in his book, Drive, but it's become something that's really become a focus of my coaching work as well as my teaching at Penn. It's the notion of people look for three things in a career. They want autonomy, they want mastery, and they want purpose and meaning. And I would say that purpose and meaning has really come to be a significant aspect of that equation recently. The purpose and meaning is really profoundly shifting. But the other two, autonomy and mastery, are critical things that if organizations can learn to implement and embed in their organizational development plans and processes, the opportunity for people to exercise those three things, I think they'll have a far successful, more successful organization. I I get the purpose. I get that. And I get the idea that autonomy, nobody wants to, you know, be micromanaged and have someone look over their shoulder all the time. Talk to me more about mastery. What what are we talking about there? Yeah, mastery is interesting that, um, you know, and I've I've experienced this myself having gone through different transitions in my organizational life and also I think mastery really at the grandest level is really about being able to um, have the freedom to learn what needs to be learned in order to become successful in your job and and have the resources that are needed uh, that need to be invested in you in order to help you get that mastery. But there's also, again, a very self, uh, self-motivator self yeah. around all of that. You can't just expect for it to drop on your on your, on your lap in your organization. You've got to work hard to find this mastery and you've got to be able to articulate what is the benefit and the value to the organization of you achieving this mastery in this realm and, and being able to line up the needs of the, of the job responsibilities with the opportunity to learn your way through it and grow with it and have the organization have the confidence in you to provide you with the necessary pathway to learn what you need to learn. I like it. I like it. Um, then let me let me flip it around a little bit then and say, um, you're a grandpa now. I am. Proudly so. <laughs> proudly so. And you've married off uh, your beautiful daughters. Uh, and so now you're also, uh, well, you're going to be, if you're not already, an uncle uh, by extension. And you're going to have all these kids who are going to be coming to uncle or grandpa Steve. Actually, I'm sorry, it's not Grandpa Steve, it is Pachis. Pachis, right? I, I remember. Yeah, you have <laughs> uh, those of you who aren't yeah in on the joke yet. Yeah, he actually has a hat. He's showing me right now. His granddaughter calls him Pachis, Papa Steve. Steve, I don't know. She couldn't say she couldn't say Papa Steve, so she came out as Pachis, and it stuck with her ever since. Yeah, you go, and fr- from now on forever, I think I might start calling you Pachis, but. When, when one of these kids comes and, and they're a little older, they're now 18, 20 years old, and they're about to enter the professional world in earnest, right? It's no longer the, the summer job or flipping hamburgers. They're really serious now, and they want to go on a path. 
They sit you down and they're going to ask you for some advice. They tell you, I want to, I'm not just about making a lot of money. I want to have the kind of life you've had, Steve. I I want to, at the end of the day, say I, I did work that I loved, work that I'm proud of, uh, something that, and I, and I made myself happy through my professional life. What are we going to, what, advice, what guidance do you give that person who's asking you that? Yeah, well, in the context of what we started this conversation around, around change, God only knows what it'll be like in uh, 18 years or more when this conversation might take place. But yeah, I, I think I would uh, I would tell them that it, it really starts with the vision of what it is that you want, what's within your own soul, within your heart that feels like it's something you want to pursue. What do you really care about? And it starts with that thought about and maybe who knows what will happen in the intervening years as they're growing up, something might come along that uh, indicates that they have a particular passion around something that I would want to encourage and grow within them. So I would say, what are you passionate about? What do you really care about today that really matters to you? And what's a relevant course of um, study or access to what you need to learn in order to make that work for you available to you today? In what form and what it may not be a traditional college uh, as we know it. It might be something completely different by then. But I think it starts with what's what's the fire within yeah. that needs to come out for you. I think that's the universal, and that's been true, I think, for centuries, that um, in many ways, that that's, that's the universal humanistic approach to thinking about a career. If you get, if you end up in a profession that where you make a lot of money, but you're miserable every day, what a trial is that to do that for 30 years of your life? What's the point of that, right? What's the point of it? Exactly right. It's, I always say, I mean, how many houses can you live in at once? Yeah. And whether you're driving, you know, I like Bugattis and I, I think they're pretty cars, but you know what? My Toyota 4Runner works just fine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I'm very happy in it. And and I, I think, well, my, my business partner, you know, has encouraged me to buy myself a Bugatti or something like that. Yeah. I don't see it. Uh, it it's even if you have infinite resources, well, yeah, I'd rather have motorcycles. That's exactly what I told him. I'd rather chop it up and buy, you know, five motorcycles. But I don't know. I, I always give people similar advice. In fact, I'm, I'm simpler than you are. And I point them to, uh, do you remember that old cartoon? Maybe the girls used to watch it. Magic School Bus. Did you ever see that one? Did the girls ever watch that? There's this great cartoon uh, for children. And the star of the cartoon was Miss Frizzle, who was this teacher. And her saying was, take chances, make mistakes, get messy. Yeah. Love it. Yeah, that's great. I love that. I always tell the 18, the 20, the 25-year-olds, you know what? Take chances, make mistakes, get messy. I love it. You know, yeah, just go out and do it, right? And and that's just fine. And But I think you bring also up a very important point, which is examine and re-examine and go back to your why right not just what you want to do but but your why and and I'm going to I'm going to corner you here and I started out this conversation today talking about how in on July 20th 1969 I as a a young kid uh I ran outside I looked up uh, and I looked at the moon because it, it just and I think every kid of my generation did the same thing. It just was astounding to us that men were actually on the moon. And I know that that 
event became pivotal in your life too. I wonder if you'd mind sharing that story with all of us. Yeah, it actually goes uh, back. I mean, the moon landing was amazing. And I was, I was, uh, remember watching that with just my jaw was dropping. But the event for me that, that struck the most was uh, when I was eight years old, which was 1961. And I actually remember the day. Uh, it was May 26, 1961. And uh, I had heard on, I'd heard, uh, I lived in England at the time, and I was listening to the BBC News that day, and they were reporting on American politics, and it was the day after Kennedy had spoken to a joint session of Congress when he said 30 words that would change my life. It was on the lines of, oh, I can't quote it precisely, I don't think, but it was something on the lines, of, I believe this country should commit itself before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon, and my favorite part, and bringing him safely back to Earth. That's an important part, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, I think there I was, a working class kid, and I told you I had sort of, you know, aspects of learning difficulties, but I can't tell you the fire that that speech, listening to that, those 31 words, uh, I can't tell you how the fire of that speech lit something within me. And I would argue that both consciously and unconsciously, the rest of my life was dedicated to find a way that I could live in a country, which I now do, that espoused that way of thinking and that way of imagining the future for itself. And it just absolutely just uh, was the, the propellant that uh, put me on this quest to now be proudly an American citizen for that reason. It was, it was the culmination of that. But there's an interesting postscript to that story, which I think you might know. Do you want me to tell that too? Yeah, please, please do tell the, tell the rest of the, the, and you know, Paul Harvey used to say the rest of the story. Yes. So it was, uh, that was in 1961 when that first thing happened. So let's jump ahead maybe almost 50 years now. And I'm here li living in the United States. I'm associated with the Wharton School and uh, they have a, a wonderful uh, annual conference there. Uh, for leadership development. And I was in a position of leadership uh, development work that I was doing at the time. So it was always a very important conference for me to go to. And the day that I went on this particular case, it was a Tuesday morning. It was pouring with rain. I took the train down to Philadelphia from my home. And uh, the, the worst thing happened to me was my uh, train was late and I was delayed. And I hate, hate, hate being late yeah, for anything. We share that. <laughs> yeah. And I get to the conference center in Huntsman Hall, and there is one seat available in the second row in the middle of the aisle, in the middle of the row. There's no aisle. It's just, and the, the person on the door said, that's the way you need to go. I said, well, the, 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 the speaker is speaking. He said, I don't care. Just go down. Just excuse yourself and get into your seat. So I walked down and, uh, and excuse me, excuse me. I felt terrible. I plopped down in this chair. And uh, there's a young man sitting next to me who was very kind. And then the speakers are going on. And every once in a while, the speaker would say, talk to the person next to you in order to uh, answer a particular question related to his speech. So I got to know this guy pretty well during the day. And uh, end of the conference came and he said to me, uh, hey, would you like to go get a, a drink in the bar? I said, sure, that'd be good. Uh, my, my train's not for another hour. I've got plenty of time. So we started to walk up the outside of the conference center, and we're going up the escalator. So he asked me the question, how come you ended up in the United States? So I told him that story of the Kennedy speech. He stopped, literally, 
clutched his chest and he says, my grandfather wrote that speech for Kennedy. Wow. Wow. I thought, my God, 50 years later, that inspirational thing came back. We had a wonderful conversation. Full circle. And he, he actually sent me uh, uh, copies of his grandfather's handwritten notes as he was working through that for Kennedy. Wow. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, scanned them over and sent them to me. So it's an incredible sort of um, coda to the story, you know, the, 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 the genesis, beginning and the ending of it. You know, it, more important than that story is your attunement to it. I don't think enough people find that, right, and sit with that. And if I were to sum up our conversation, that becomes the the crucible, the essence of a lot of what you're saying is find the reasons, right? Don't find the objectives. And too many of us, well, I want to have a big house and I want to drive a nice car and and I want to be able to go on great vacations. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with nothing that. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, I, you know, I, be, I tell people, I've been rich and I've been poor. Rich is better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know my backstory, right? I literally lived on the streets. I ate out of garbage dumpsters, uh, quite literally. Uh, and, you know, uh, this the sort of, I don't know, um, lucky story I've had uh, over the course of my life where I've done well. And, and look, I enjoy having all those things. I love motorcycles. <laughs> I like the idea that I can afford to buy a bunch of motorcycles. But if that's what your life becomes all about, then your life's about nothing. And, and I think that's really what you communicate, what you convey, how you define yourself is to be able to say, let's find those things that really matter in our life that really are are what drive us. And let's live a life that's concordant with those things. Let's define our values. Let's define what we believe in and, and not check them at the office door. Let's bring them with us, right? Let's have that be the price of admission that if I'm all about health and well-being, then I'm not going to go to work for Philip Morris. Uh, if I am all about, you know, saving the the environment, I may not go to work for whatever company. Uh, but if my work tells me that I'm all about, you know, whatever, the, 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 we need to have oil independence from these different nations, then, hey, I might be okay with working at a nuclear power facility or wherever. And, and I think w- what I hear from you always, Steve, is you're not saying there is one set of values that, that people need to ascribe to what you think is right, but very few people take the time to define what their values actually are. They take very little time to look at the why in their life and what why they want to do uh, versus what. And if they would do that, they would be a lot happier in their life. And And I think you'd agree that the same can be said of the organization. Yeah. Instead of just saying we need a strong back or a good set of hands to say to ourselves, we're employing entire human beings that who we're bringing in. Yeah. You know, it, it, the advice I give often to, to young people in particular, especially my grad students that I love to work with uh, on their various uh, projects is, is discover your why. Yeah. You know, spend the time doing that. It was wonderful. I had a, a, an opportunity recently to speak at a conference uh, in Georgia to a wonderful group of insurance executives. And um, the, a question came up there about this issue of, of, of 
the why, and particularly in terms of uh, their concerns about the return to work and the impact on the workforce. And um, I got them engaged in a bit of a conversation, which was very nice to see happen, how wonderful they were with this and and how these things came readily to mind. I said, you know, on the surface of it, the insurance business can look pretty dry and maybe boring. Uh, but I'm sure that if you were to really get into the stories of your clients, what has the fact that they had insurance meant for them yeah. in terms of their life's ability to continue to be able to resolve uh, get them back on track with their lives. If you were to collect the stories of the clients who have had to use your services because of a profound loss of some sort, and you start to use that in your literature to market new employees to your organization, imagine the difference you might make in terms of the quality of people that are attracted to your organization. And it's not delusional. But it's the story of the bricklayer, right? Who's not building a wall, but building a cathedral. Cathedral, sure. Even uh, my wife, Angie, and I, you know, I don't have to tell you who my wife is, but Angie and I uh, were actually talking the other day, uh, and and I'm sorry if this offends people, but the idea of professional hell for me uh, would be working at a furniture store. I don't know why. (laughs) The idea of uh, someone comes in, it's like, what do you want? A couch. It's like, I'm done. And that would be your day. But but even in thinking of that, I think, couldn't you reconceptualize even that? Couldn't you say, you know, the most, the happiest moments of my day-to-day life, and this sounds pretty prosaic, pretty boring, but are spent in the evenings when Angie and I are sitting on the couch. And, you know, either we're yelling at the TV together, which is a lot of fun, or she's watching one of those, either the home improvement or the murder shows, which I don't particularly care for and I'm reading a book uh, but we're in one another's company and it's the couch the couch becomes you know there was an episode of friends once where um, the character Joey uh, is told by someone that they don't have this person doesn't have a television in their house and he said well what do you point all your furniture at (laughs) (laughs) it's funny how you know the the couch becomes such a central part of our lives with a dining room table or whatever those furnitures are and so I say that to say you know, even if you work in my idea of the worst job I could imagine, there are still ways you can frame this and look at this, uh, I think, to your point of, of insurance and think about why is this, you know, concordant with my values? Why is this a benefit to the world? Why is this a good thing that we're doing? So you don't necessarily have to be the missionary and you don't have to be working for Greenpeace and you don't have to be, you, you as an example, work for the Federal Reserve Bank. Uh, for you know nearly 30 years for 27 years and I know uh, and unfortunately we don't have time to get into but some of the community work you did uh, to work with the various business communities and the the aspiring entrepreneurs and the uh, minority groups that were trying to uh, better understand their budgets and better understand their finance and some of this work you did and even with enriching the lives of the employees who were there within the Fed, you know, I, you saw it almost, uh, I know, as a mission. And, you know, speaking of that, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention to to the listeners, uh, you're, a, you're a profoundly religious person, uh, and, and I respect and admire that. And what I respect and admire the most is, you know, I'm not. And yet, for 25 years, you've never, not only have you never tried to proselytize, you've never judged me. You've never made me uncomfortable to be able to say that. And 
And when I say to to our listeners that you're not just religious, but you're also a very spiritual person, I know. And in fact, uh, the organization that you're working with now, Cranoleth, I think has become a manifestation of some of that. Would you mind sharing a little bit about Cranoleth, who they are, and what you're doing with them? Yeah, Cranoleth is an amazing place. It's very hard to describe exactly what it does and how it does it for me. But um, Cranoleth is a, a place in Philadelphia. It's 10 acres of, of ground that was once uh, sacred land of the Lenape Indian tribe when they lived here in Philadelphia. And, and uh, a family took over. It's also the home of, of American suffrage. Uh, Susan B. Anthony used to stay on the Victorian house that's on the grounds of Cranoleth. And they planned the suffrage movement for Philadelphia out of that very house. At some point, a, a group of a family took over the house, the Trainer family, and their daughter became a nun in the uh, Sisters of, of Mercy uh, convent. And uh, when uh, when the family was ready to pass the property on to their siblings, none of them wanted it. So they said, what are we going to do with this thing? So they donated the property to the Sisters of Mercy and turned it into what we would call a retreat center. And the idea was to build a, a place there where anybody of any faith tradition could come and reflect and enjoy the facilities and the grounds and uh, find rest and restoration and what was in their human spirit to give to be able to find peace and contentment and a focus in their life. And whether you could afford it or not didn't matter. They would, they would find a way for, for um, whoever needed that. We call it a sanctuary of trees. Cranoleth is, the word Cranoleth means sanctuary of trees. It's in Gaelic. And uh, it, it became this place of, of uh, universal acceptance of whatever troubles you might have. And the focus of action there has been on helping people who are marginalized in our society. So issues of racism, issues of poverty, those are the focus activities of Cranoleth that tries to sort of bring some wholeness to that thinking and to hold people up who are victimized by these circumstances. Wonderful. But we also, we also realize that our workplaces are equally devoid of the human spirit. So there's also a practice now of people in the workplace who are looking for wholeness and healing from their workplace journey. So we, we cover both ends of the spectrum here. And a few years ago, we created a, uh, about 10 years ago, we developed a conference center. So people can now come and spend a lot of time there and, and have some uh, healing and restoration of whatever it is that ails them and short retreats, daily retreats, corporate retreats, whatever it takes. And so I've been there now. I'm in my second term as the chairman of the board. So I'm in my fourth year as chairman of this place, but I actually got started because of a thing called the Work and Spirit series uh, 20 some odd years ago that led me to Cranoleth, and I've been sort of donating my time there, uh, volunteering to do things, facilitating, teaching, performing my music, uh, inviting people in and extending the invitation for people to, to discover it and come and learn from it. So we're about ready to have a 25th anniversary coming up. So. Oh. Well, happy anniversary. And, you know, the reason I want you to, to speak to that is for the people who are listening, we tend to confound too often, I think, just society in general. We confound these notions of religiosity and spirituality. And here's a great example where one doesn't have to be the other. This, this became very clear to me, not only in my conversations with you, uh, as you know, I had uh, – 
open heart surgery. Just uh, is actually wow. Seven months ago today. Um, seven months ago today. Yeah, I know, and and I feel great. And those of you who who are listening in, it wasn't because of anything I did. It wasn't diet or sloth or anything like that. It was a congenital uh, issue that needed to be resolved. And so I went to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Uh, Minnesota. And I have to tell you, the, the most extraordinary care one could ever imagine. One of the things I didn't know before I went to Mayo was Mayo was actually founded by a doctor and a nun. Uh, it was uh, Mother Alfred Mose who partnered with uh, Dr. William Morrill Mayo, Mayo uh, to, to create this clinic. And the nuns and the religious order still play a part in Mayo, but it's never imposed on you, yeah. right? It's never anything to do with it. The fact that I'm, you know, if anything, uh, I'm, I, well, I don't know what I am and I, I won't get into that. Uh, this probably isn't the proper episode, but I never felt judged. I never felt like I was being proselytized. I never felt like, you know, that, that feeling of, and I never felt odd or out. And I think that's important also because what you're talking about here and what we've been talking about is this ability, this capacity to bring, for a lack of a better word, spirituality uh, into the workplace. And we don't have to be afraid of it. We don't have to say that this means, well, you know, I'm, I'm trying to convert people over to insert the religion here uh, and, and I'm trying to get them, proselytize them to a certain set of beliefs or I'm sitting in judgment of and I think it's important to acknowledge that this is an essential part of what it is to be human. Yes. Right. Uh, I, I think you and I absolutely agree that the, the full human looks at continuously evolving body, mind, and spirit. And however you define that, it doesn't have to be religious. You can be an absolute uh, atheist, agnostic, not believe in any of this uh, religions, any of that stuff, uh, any deity. And that doesn't matter. You still have to acknowledge that there's something more than just your brain and your body. There's something more. And whether that's relationships or it's a love of children or it's just enjoying a sunrise, like to be out in the woods, that's all contained within, I think, your definition of spirituality. And that's something that has been conspicuously absent from work and shouldn't be anymore. Uh, I think you would agree. Oh, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, I, I, I do think that body, mind and spirit are all important ingredients for a healthy and happy life. The, the opportunity to do that. And, and we do need to take time outs from schedules sometimes to be reflective and to heal our spirit around things and, you know, allow it to grow within us. And I think that's also that path to empathy that I talked about before, because through, through a spiritual thinking that's when we learn to appreciate what other people need from us and it's it's not necessarily telling you what i think you need to do but it's about just being aware that 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 person needs some attention right now they need some help they need some restoration they need some ability to rebuild a part of themselves and what can you do to make that happen for them in a way that's meaningful to them rather than meaningful to you and that's where the essence of that empathy comes from it's about accepting who you are and not, uh, not requiring you to change to who I am in order to have a relationship with me. Yeah, I think that's such an important point, Steve. And, and I should say, pardon the pun, but on a final note, uh, a lot of where 
you find that space is in music and through your music. Right. And uh, I'm going to tell the people who are listening, we're actually going to play with your permission, uh, at least a part of one of your songs. And we're going to put on a link to your music. Uh, it's, it's been life-changing for me. Some of your songs are just, uh, and well, thank you. you know, I'm a huge fan. Uh, and you write about very important topics and some of the topics we tend to not like to talk about. Uh, and, and it becomes cathartic almost just to be able to listen to some of these stories that you tell uh, through music. And, and, and uh, well, I'll just say, you know, Steve is an incredibly accomplished musician. Uh, he's actually been recognized for some of his work. Uh, and and as I say, we'll put links to some of that. But Steve, uh, that is the final note. As always, thank you so much for taking the time to have the conversation. Uh, I am looking forward to, well, typically we'll be a little disclosive here. T Steve and I typically have these conversations in one or two ways, either over breakfast at a diner that's halfway between our homes or better still at his beach house over scotch. Yeah. Uh, and those are the best conversations. <laughs> we should record one of those. One We've day. solved more of the world's problems at the beach than I care to, to reflect on. Yeah, but we sure have. thank you for this uh, wonderful opportunity. It's always uh, a great pleasure for me to spend any time in your company, as you well know, and I never would turn down an opportunity to hang out with you on any occasion. So thank you so much. It was wonderful to see you. Right back at you, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks again. Bye. All right, man. Thank you to all of our listeners for joining us for this episode. We really appreciate your support and hope you enjoyed the conversation. We just wanted to take this opportunity to remind everyone that the Tomorrow Today podcast is a nonprofit venture committed to bringing awareness to important social issues. Funding for this episode, like all our episodes, has been provided by Protected by AI and Codelock. Protected by AI develops leading-edge solutions at the intersection of technology and psychology. Check out some of the ways Protected by AI can revolutionize your organization by visiting protectedby.ai, protectedby.ai. And Codelock? Codelock is a game-changing software security solution that the U.S. Department of Homeland Security has said, and I'm quoting you, quote, Codelock appears to have the capability to stop the most sophisticated criminal malware." end quote. You can learn more about Codelock by visiting codelock.it, codelock.it. And uh, yeah, thanks again for tuning into the conversation. And please do check out Protected by AI and Codelock. Tomorrow Today is only possible because of their sponsorship and because you're listening. And be sure to visit us at our website, tomorrowtoday.show, where you'll find show notes, links, and most importantly, ways to subscribe to the show. You can also give us a review, leave us a message, or tell us what topics you'd like to us to address in upcoming episodes. Thanks to all of you again for joining the conversation and for helping us make a better tomorrow today. <laughs>